Well, it's good to be with you guys. It's good to hear you sing. I, I, I have this uh, confession to make. I love it when Matt stands up here and sings by himself. That gives me a chance to not only hear him, but hear you guys sing so well. So thank you for joining us in worship this morning. And it's a good morning to be here. And it's good to, to worship and fellowship with you all. Um, it's exciting. I'm excited about our series. We've been going through a series called Her Strength. And, and it's all about um, how and where to get our strength from. And it's, we've taken a look at um, an Old Testament, a couple Old Testament female characters in the Bible. And we have a really cool one to take a look at this morning. Um, but the question is, is where does your strength come from when things get difficult? You know, I think that we all have this uh, sense that we're all strong when life goes well, right? When, when the, the paychecks are rolling in and, and, and the spouse is seeming to get along with you well and the family, the kids are obeying, you know, and everything is going well, you feel pretty strong. You feel pretty good. But when life turns upside down, when you get that diagnosis, when your boss calls you into that office and you know what's coming, where do you turn to for your strength? Where does your strength actually come from? You know, it's, the strength uh, is that, that we think that we have is in a bit of an illusion when we compare our personal strength with the strength of our Heavenly Father. Um, not only is He the one that gives us strength uh, when we need it, but He's the one that controls everything. He literally has everything under control. And so that's the direction that we're headed this morning, and, and I'm excited. Um, you know, I don't usually think too much about my strength when things are going well, but, but like I said, when things go poorly, I'm forced to turn to the Father. And, and um, I can remember a time in my life where I had a job, and things were going well, and I was, I was making decent money, and the family was happy, and everybody was in school, and the house payments were being made, you know, that kind of life. It was great. And I can remember going to work, and, and the company was going through some struggles, and I had gone through a series of layoffs, and I'd laid off a lot of the people that had worked for me at the company. Um, I was a marketing manager there. And I can remember going into work, I'll never forget the day, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm so glad we got through that difficult period. <laughs> that difficult period of having to do all those layoffs, now it's time to clean up the mess and get to work and see what's next for us. And I get that call you know, about, about 8.45, I show up at 8.30, and about 8.45, I get the call, hey, boss wants to see you. I'm like, oh, I wonder what he wants to talk about. And he calls me into his office, and he says, you know, we've been going through these layoffs, um, and what I didn't tell you was you're the last one to be laid off. And, and I can remember hearing the words and it not registering right away, you know, and, and, and slowly as I walk out, and because of the company that we were, we had to be escorted out by security, so there's a security guard walking me out, and I'm going, oh my gosh, how, how did this happen? This came out of the blue. I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and I don't know how I'm going to make all the payments and meet all the standards and care for the family. We had a foster child at the time, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and my, the bottom of my world, the bottom of my own confidence, my own strength fell out. And I, and I fell through the bottom, and I just felt like I was free falling. And I didn't know what to do. And it took me a couple of hours. I actually drove around town because I didn't know what to tell my wife, you know. I drove around town for a couple of hours, probably wasted too much gas. And I finally show back up at my own doorstep in tears going, I just don't know how this is going to work. And it's in times like that, it seems like God puts you in a pressure cooker, and the only response is, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't have the strength for this. I, this was all I had. This was my one idea to do this. What's next? And it's in times like that that God shows up 
and that God gives us strength, even if you don't feel his strength. I can tell you for the, for the weeks and the months and even the next year or two after that, I didn't feel strong. I felt beat down. I felt broken. But looking back on it, God was there. And it was his strength that flowed through my veins and his courage that made me put one foot in front of the other in front of the other. And so when times go hard, when times go badly, we, we, we turn to the Lord. And, and if you're like me, um, the enemy does this double whammy on you. So, so when you turn to the Lord, you realize that you, you've never prayed so much in your life when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. You've never prayed so hard in your life when you get that, that, that diagnosis and you just don't know what's going to happen. And I feel guilty. That's what I do. I feel guilty because it's like, I, I don't pray like that when times are going well. I only pray like that when I have to. You know, it's like, the, it's like your friend who has a pickup truck. You only call him when you're moving, you know, and you're, picking, you're calling him, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I have to ask this guy again. And, hey, buddy, how's it going? <laughs> Still got that truck, right? So I feel, I feel bad that I'm so weak, and I feel bad that I only talk to God this way when I absolutely have to. It's this double, double whammy on me. The point is, is that I need God's strength the most when times are difficult. I want to be filled with his strength. And as we look at these characters in the Bible, they seem so strong. And I want that kind of strength. I want the kind of strength that, that is not shaken, is, is not uh, scared. I, I, I want to have this strength where I'm so confident in what God is doing that just nothing bothers me. <clears throat> I want that strength. I want that strength for my kids as they grow old. I want them to have that kind of strength. I want my wife to have that kind of strength. I want my church to have that kind of strength, that no matter what happens, we know that God is good and God is all-powerful. I want that for you individually. And if we just take a minute and think about what it would be like in your day-to-day -day life where you could have this confidence that seemingly is never shaken, what would your life be like? What kind of decisions would you make? How would you handle money? How would you handle arguments? How would you handle that call from the boss where you're not sure if you're going to walk out of that meeting employed or not? That kind of confidence is something that we see from biblical characters. And the interesting thing is, is not only is God the God who gives us his strength, but if you look back, you'll see that God is the God who's walked with us through these trials. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope for the future. It gives me hope for us. It gives me hope for my kids, even in this crazy world. I turned off all my news apps because I just, it's too much at this point. But I want that strength and that confidence. So God knew, God knew in, his, in his infinite wisdom that we would wonder about this today here at Grace Chapel in Clifton Park. He knew it, and he's provided ways for us to gain that strength. He's provided a way for us to collectively be strong together because of what he's done for us. And not only that, this is what I love about God. It's like you can double down on his goodness. Not only did he do that, he gave us story after story after story in his scripture of people just like you and just like me 
who have sin, who have fear, who are not sure what tomorrow looks like, and they're scared of it. He gave us those stories. And this is one of the reasons why I love his scripture so much, is he took careful care over the ages to record these things so that when you're not sure what's next, you're not sure if your marriage is going to make it, if your job is going to sustain you, you're not sure where your high school son is right now. (laughs) You can pick this up and you can read story after story of people just like you who found their strength in the Lord. And that's what I'm excited to read to you this morning. We're going to talk about uh, someone by the name of Deborah. And Deborah was, was in a very, very difficult time in Scripture. And this is the time of Judges. And Judges 21, 25 says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if that's not scary enough, this is a time period where steel and muscle won the day. You don't have to have a very vivid imagination to understand what kind of life Deborah had to live, what was going on in their community, in their area, in their nation, in the neighboring nations. It was a brutal time. It was a brutal time. Apathy and apostasy was rampant in the nation at this point. And that means that people knew what they should do but they chose not to. It means they kind of got fed up with church. (laughs) They kind of got fed up with this whole Yahweh character, right? They just got tired of it. And they decided to do what was right in their own eyes. When you have that justification, horrible, horrible things happen. And that's the judge's period. This is what Deborah was faced It was a brutal time. You know, interestingly enough, Deborah is one of three women that served as judges. You have Miriam in Exodus 15. And you know, maybe you've heard Miriam, she worked with Moses for good or for bad. (laughs) And you have another woman by the name of Huldah. And if you put all three, Deborah, Miriam, and Huldah together in a three-way arm wrestling match, I think Huldah would win. But that's just because I'm assuming things about her name. You find Huldah's story in 2 Kings 22. You get the sense that these three judges in this period were not judges because they said, you know what would be a fun career? You know, I really feel like I could add a lot if I was a judge. You know, I've heard the salary is pretty decent and the benefits are okay. You know, you get to work for the state. It's pretty good. I think I'm going to do that. I think the salary would help benefit our family, you know, and it would just make things a little easier. Maybe we could go to Disney World a little bit more often than we do already. That's not the time period. (laughs) That's not the time period at all. These three women, Deborah in particular, were judges out of necessity. They were judges because things were so bad. They weren't in place because things were going smoothly. They were in place because the wheels had fallen off, and they were desperately trying to right a very wrong ship. Deborah raised her hand and answered a call that God placed on her, and it was a dangerous, dangerous call. I want to pick the story up in Judges chapter 4. We're going to read 1 through 17, and this is one of those stories that has another story happening 
mid-story, so you have to pay attention to that. We're going to put the words on the screen so you can follow along. The story goes like this. Judges 4, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Higium because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years because he did all of this. They cried out to the Lord for help. Iron-clad chariots is like tanks in today's day and age. He had 900 of them. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipodeth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now, there's a couple things. We'll just pause there. There's a couple things that it's important to pay attention to. The Israel nation corporately did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord, and God sold them into slavery. What a horrible thing a God would do. But God used neighboring countries back then to discipline his beloved children, and it was a painful timeout that they were taking, but it was effective. And 20 years of brutality they finally cried out to God. It took me like an hour to cry out to God when I lost my job. It took them 20 years to cry out to the Lord. And there's a couple of things about Deborah that are important to mention. We see that she's the wife of, wife of Lipodeth. Lipodeth. Lipodoth, maybe is how you say that. You know, you research that name, and you don't find it anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament except this passage. There's no history lineage of Lipodeth. There's no city of Lipodeth. There's no town of Lipodeth. They don't know where the name came from. Now, what that tells us is that it wasn't a prominent name, but it is derived from the Hebrew word of fiery. <laughs> so either Deborah put up with a very fiery husband, which says something about her, or it was a family name that she fit which means she was fiery. Either way, there's some fire stuff going on around Deborah. That's the first thing we know about her. You see that she held court in the palm, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Now, when you look at under a palm and, and what the palm represents, there is a Song of Songs passage. Now, I wouldn't recommend you going and turning to that now. It will be a little distracting for you during the service. You can look at that later. There is a palm reference in this passage. And the palm represents uprightness, peacefulness, and leadership. So you get this sense that Deborah is this woman that's filled with grace and stature, and she is a leader among leaders. And just from that little passage, we're getting a picture of who this woman is living and leading in a time where men did what was right in their own eyes. We'll keep going. Verse 6. So Deborah, she, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you 
to go take with you 10,000 men to Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Oh, you will. That's interesting. Now, another thing just worth mentioning is not only does Deborah have these words and ideas swirling around her that gives us the impression she's this confident, stately, upright leader. And, and by the way, Israel responds and goes to her for their, for their struggles and their difficulties. But you see how confidently she tells this general, Barak, what to do. And, and, and her confidence doesn't even really come from her. It's not like, hey, Barack, I got this idea. <laughs> this is what you should do. It's like, no, 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 I got no ideas. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you to do. Okay, okay, calm down, Deborah, I'll do it. Verse 8, Barack said to her, um, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, it ain't happening. Certainly I will go with you, Deborah, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Cesira, or Cesira into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to, the, to Kadesh. Where there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Wow, this story, just, it just keeps revealing more and more and more about this woman. So, a time when men did what they wanted to do, a time when iron and muscle ruled the day. A woman is a judge, a prophet, and she's the one that leads with stateliness and grace and leadership, and she effortlessly commands the strongest general Israel has to summon 10,000 troops and to attack a 20-year-old oppressor. Because God told her that they were going to be delivered into Israel's hands. What kind of confidence does that take? What kind of leadership does that take to say, hey guys, we could all die here, but I'm confident God told me this. She's a woman among women. She is a leader among leaders. And she exudes strength. Oh, I want that. I want that. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for this church. She is so confident that Barak, the strongest, best general they have, says, I'm not going to touch what the Lord commands me to do if you're not with me. That's crazy confidence. It also shows that Barak is humble, that he sees what could possibly happen, and he respects this woman so much that he is willing to take her into battle to provide him confidence to win the day. I like this Barak guy. He drew on her strength to do what God asked. He drew on her strength who was drawing on God's strength, and that was good enough for Barak. The next section. 
So they've summoned this army. Deborah is with Barak. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Verse 12, when, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinadab, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned Herosheth and Haggiam to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. He is really proud of those 900 chariots. I'm sure they were waxed to perfection. Verse 14, then Deborah, here comes Deborah again. Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone before you? So Barak went down, to Mount, went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot that he was so proud of and fled on foot. Deborah, a leader, confidence, exudes grace and stateliness commands the biggest, strongest, best commander, he responds with, I'm not doing it unless you come with me. Can you imagine if I said that to my wife when I'm going upstairs to discipline our children? Honey, I'm not going up there <laughs> unless you come with me. I'm going to use this passage later, see how it works out. No, it's not going to fly. Barak says that to Deborah. I'm not going. And did you notice how Deborah, Deborah responds? She's like, sure, I'll go. I get it. Oh, I get it. You're terrified. I get it. <laughs> and you need me. I get it. I absolutely get it. I'll go with you. But because you're going and you're doing it this way, just so you know, no one's going to sing songs about you. Someone's going to sing songs about another woman because another woman is going to kill this general. And Brock's response is, cool. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. That's the confidence of Deborah. That's her strength that she exudes. Deborah commands Barak again, and she encourages him, go now, has the Lord ever let you down? Has, hasn't the Lord gone before you? This summons Barak's courage, and he leads, and it says, interestingly, he leads, the troops follow. This is the kind of guy Barak was. He leads, they follow, 10,000 men go down with him. And they rout the enemy so hard that the leading general, the commander, the one responsible for the 20 years of oppression over Israel, gets out of his chariot, tucks his cloak between his legs, and runs. And that's all because of a woman said, go. That's power. Cicero ends up dying at the hands of another woman later in the chapter. I'd encourage you reading it. It's a fascinating and vivid story. This wonderful, amazing feat happens. And, and what we know of Deborah, I can, I can see her going home that night, getting off work a little early, picking up some wine on the way home. Hey, Lapaleth, I, I got some extra wine for us. Let's have a nice dinner. Okay, honey, what'd you do today? Oh, you know, same old stuff. Had a couple of meetings. Had a meeting with Barack. Yeah, told him to go uh, take on the enemy. He does. Everything goes well. That's nice, honey. Deborah exudes this confidence. And it's almost like she doesn't really even bat an eye. 
Like, okay, yeah, cool. That's exactly what God said he was going to do. Why are we surprised that he did it? Barak responds to her so well. He follows her lead. He has to have her presence in order to gain confidence to win the day. It's a wonderful story. But you know what's interesting? If you zoom out and you look at the nation of Israel and what they struggled with over centuries, really, I don't think they struggle with the exact same thing that you and I seem to struggle with. The nation of Israel has a unique habitual struggle. They never seem to wonder if God is powerful enough. They never seem to wonder that. There's never like, well, you know, we know God loves us, but I don't think he has the strength. That wasn't the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel struggled with something else. They struggled. They got seduced by other gods that promised the world to them. They got distracted with their neighbor's religions. They got influenced by those around them. And it was always, it seems like this repetitive problem. They get seduced, apathy, apostasy. They kind of go their own way. They do their own thing. God sends an oppressor. The oppressors oppress. They cry out. God saves them over and over and over. I think we struggle with something else. I don't think we struggle with, does God love us? Is God good? I think that's what Israel struggled with. They weren't sure at times of God's goodness. We struggle with, is God strong enough? Is God powerful enough? We always seem to land with, oh man, God loves us. Oh, he's such a loving God. But it always tends to go two ways. Either either God's too distant to really help me with that meeting that I'm about to have with my boss, or God just isn't strong enough. He's not powerful enough. And and I think we come to church and we we sing songs about God's power and, and we know that we're supposed to believe in God's power, but when it comes to the day in and day out life, do we really believe that God is powerful enough to do what he says he's going to do. Do we really believe that? I don't know. I think that's something that we should write down. Ask yourself this question. Do you really believe God is both good and powerful? And that's an easy question to ask this morning in church. But tomorrow morning or the morning after or the morning after, when you get up and you realize that there's this huge meeting you're supposed to lead and you haven't prepared for it, Is God loving and is God powerful? When life seems to come apart at the seams and you're not sure what life looks like next week, is God loving, both loving and powerful? That's the question. And this is the theme this morning. This is the main idea, the thing that I want us to walk away with. When strength comes from the Lord, there is ultimate confidence in His plans. Ultimate confidence. I think about Deborah, and I think about the confidence that she exudes, the strength that she has, and I desperately want that. And I turn to my life, and I go, where is that strength? Where is that confidence that I would literally march myself to my own death if I thought God was going to save me out of it? Where is that in my life? Where is that in your life? How do we exude the confidence and strength like Deborah? You know, the interesting thing is Deborah had something that we may not have. 
Deborah was called into a role that was arguably one of the most hazardous roles of the time. It, it was like signing up to be in the front lines of the infantry before you go to battle, <laughs> not after. It was deadly. You see, she was a prophet, and back then, being a prophet was hazardous. Deborah was a female prophet. Being a prophet was bad enough, was difficult enough, was deadly enough. She's a woman prophet in a time where men did what they want. <laughs> you think there's a glass ceiling in our workforce? Try Deborah. Try going and convincing a bunch of bloodthirsty, power-hungry, I'll-do-what-I-want kind of people that they should listen to you and see if gender comes into play. Oh, it's a factor. It's a big factor. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22 describes being a prophet in the Old Testament and how difficult it was. The nation was instructed by God to be suspicious of anyone who said, I'm a prophet. Oh, we're very suspicious of that. God warns the nation, there's going to be false prophets. They're going to mislead you. So pay attention to what they say and see if it comes to pass. Prophet, if a prophet invoked the name of the Lord and what they said was supposed to happen didn't happen, Deuteronomy 13 says, stone them, kill them. They're false. Whoa, that is a difficult job. Think about your first day on that job, right? So I'm a <coughs> prophet. I'm sorry, what did you say? I'm a uh, Mm, frog, a prophet. Oh, really? <laughs> what you going to do? <laughs> Deborah had a lot riding on her. She had her own life riding on her understanding what God is saying. She had her family's life, her husband's life, her nation's life on her shoulders. That's something that she has that I don't have. And I think that's the thing that forces her to the Lord to say, I got nothing. I got nothing without you. She relied on God's strength. She derived her own strength from God's strength. The fact that Deborah had to rely on God virtually every day gave her some amazing stories and experiences. Amazing she probably did go home that night and have dinner with her husband and tell him what happened. They get some high fives. It's great. Let's go back to work tomorrow and see what he does tomorrow. This gave her incredible strength and confidence. This proved to her over and over that God was good, that God is loving. It proved to her over and over that, that strength comes from the Lord. And when that happens, there's ultimate confidence in his plans. So where do you get your confidence from? What experience do you have that allows you to say, see, I, I had this experience with God, and that proves to me that he's good and that he's strong. Some of you might be able to come up with ones off the tip of your tongue. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you need more. But I can tell you, if you've got a story or a couple, or if you don't, we all need more. You see, Deborah, it was a daily thing. It was a daily thing that she had this experience that proved to her. She's encouraging Barack going, doesn't God go before you? Go down. You've got it. 
So what's your story? <clears throat> this is what I want to do this morning. I want to do something that I'm calling the five-day challenge. Five-day challenge. This is what I want us to do. Ask God to reveal hurdles every day for five days. In the morning, preferably in the morning. Don't do it in the evening. Do it in the morning. Maybe in the shower when you're getting up in the morning. Think about that one hurdle for that day. One hurdle per day. What's that one hurdle? That conversation you have to have with your coworker? That, that conversation you have, to, you have to have with your spouse that night? That thing that boss, your boss wants you to do that's very questionable ethically? You're going to have to have a conversation with him about it? What's the hurdle in your life? Family member that's, that's giving you trouble or, 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 or there's, there's tension in your relationship. Ask God for help on that one hurdle. And here's the thing. I want you to pray about that one hurdle five days or five times each day. So five hurdles for five days. One hurdle per day. Five prayers about that hurdle each day. And if you're like me, you can keep that in your head for about five minutes, right? So this is what I do. Whenever I want to pray about something or I want to pray about something repetitively, I use technology actually to my advantage instead of my detriment. Set an alarm every 30 minutes or whenever you want to do it and pray about that hurdle. And at the end of the five days, think back to all the hurdles and what God has done. Rely on those stories and others like it to give you this experience so that you can trust that God is good and God is loving. And then I want you to share those stories on Facebook. <laughs> Let's do some, some good things on Facebook. I want to see them. I want to celebrate with you these hurdles that God takes care of. You know, a story that God has asked us to remember, an experience that God has asked us to repetitively remember, is the story of Jesus' life death, and resurrection. And this morning, God asks us to remember it with communion. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Jesus himself, before he died, asked us to remember him and what he did for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So we can start our five-day challenge this morning by taking communion together. By remembering what Jesus did and, and he, the fact that he died and rose so that we could have confidence in his goodness and his love and his power. Jesus beckoning us to be adopted by the king, to join this family that just exudes strength. That's what we get to celebrate and what we get to remember today. So this is how I'm going to do it this morning. I'm going to read a passage in a minute to get us all thinking about it. I'm going to pray, because that also helps us think about it, and then I want to take it together. So Matt's going to come up and play in a minute, and as that music is being played, think about this story and what it means to you in your life, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And remember that God is good, and God is powerful, and he did this for you. Let's do that now. This is Paul's words about what Jesus did for us. Paul recounts 
the story in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Get your strength from Jesus' death and resurrection for your sake. Get your confidence from the fact that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came and died for you. Remember that this morning as we take communion together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity we have to remember the story of your death and your resurrection, to remember that God is good and God is loving and God is in control. Lord, to remember that we can have ultimate confidence in your plans when we derive our strength from you. You're a good God, Lord, and you're a powerful God. And Jesus, I ask that we all just take a moment right now in our hearts and we draw on your strength because you did walk among us. You did die for our sake to remove our sins so that we might be adopted by the King. And Lord, you be death for us. What do we have to fear, Lord, if you're on our side? Give us all time this morning to remember that and draw, to draw our strength on you, Jesus. We love you, and in your name, amen.